Well, so uh, today um, we'll be talking about uh, primer on worship, and th- today we'll be talking about part two of it. So the last time, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about part one. It's already worship in the kingdom of God. And uh, I guess all this actually meant to be like a single message. You know? But as I kind of dwell more upon it, it becomes less and less of a primer. <laughs> it becomes bigger and bigger. So a little bit of a recap from uh, last time. So if you remember, like we were talking about in this season, we, we want to continue in prayer and fasting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because we want to see a move of power and we also want to see people, the lost getting saved. And there's some of the key verse that we have. And one of them is this one. Hosea 6, verse 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn, and he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. I remember the last time when I talked about part one, worship in the kingdom of God. We talk about John 4, verse 23. It says, But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, for God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And like we mentioned before, praise and worship, it's spiritual, but it's also physical at the same time. Because there's this spiritual element, there's also this physical element that we are living in currently too. And I would say, uh, this, this two, they are not separate from each other, but rather they are kind of co-partners. I say that because uh, there's some ideas, if you look to the past in church history, that's what you call Gnosticism, where people believe it's, uh, the spiritual is good and the flesh is bad. And with, with this thought here, it's... Uh, when, when you have this thought and you go further with it, when you go to the extreme, it becomes licentiousness. Because since the physical is bad and we cannot do much about it, so what do people do? They just, forgot. they just forget all about it. They just go all out in sin. And as long as they continue to read their Bible, as long as they continue to pray, and as long as they continue to fast, they think they are good. So that's a pretty dangerous idea. And uh, if you want more information on this, uh, Irenaeus will be a good person to look up second century uh, theologian. So in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 44, it says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So you see like a spiritual and the natural is kind of intertwined together. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, it says, when the perishable, which is our body, puts on the imperishable, the restored body in heaven, and the mortal put on immortality, then we shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. So we, we Christians are not in the business of discussing the imperfection therein of God's creation, but rather we are in the business of restoring His creation to the proper order, and that glorifies God. 
And uh, in James 2, verse 17 through 18, it says, So also faith by itself, it's that if it does not have work, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. And again, what is this work that we are talking about? I believe this work that we are, that are speaking of, it's a restoration of his creation to the proper order. Here. And you see, they are this thing, but they're also intertwined together. And but before the last time, we talk about praise, and praise is it's kind of distinct from uh, worship, because when you talk about praise, it's really when you come to take down strongholds. But when you talk about worship, it's a little bit more intimate. It's a little bit more about taking captive of our thoughts, knowing our need for God. And when we talk about praise and worship, we also see that it's very dynamic because uh, in the Bible, you see people prostrating. I have to make sure I get this word correct all the time. <laughs> prostrating, and they are bowing down, and they are rejoicing, and they are lifting up their hands. And it's pre- most of the time, it's pretty loud. And it's also active because they also have a com- time of confession. There's also this, uh, one of the word is translated to shooting. It's a casting down, it's a serving, it's an acting piously towards God. And praise and worship, it's a spiritual battle against the kingdom of darkness. It's a war against our sinful desires. And in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 5, let us turn there and take a quick look. A good old Bible flipping. And in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, if you guys are there, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And see, this is, like a, I think, one of the very helpful verses that whenever you start to get angry or start to get, uh, or you say you start to get stressful or you start to get depressed, this is something you can constantly remind yourself of, that to take our thought captives for the kingdom of God. And also, like, uh, it's, we, we need to be quick to shut this idea down and one of the things we have to know here, it's we have to know that the enemy is behind all of this. Because in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. And next, also reciting the word of God. I think the other good one that uh, always comes to my mind, it's uh, Psalms 23, verse 4. It says, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So whenever you're coming to times of challenge, these are very good verses. And the more you memorize, the more you can recall, the more specific it is to each event. And remember, like we are saying, we are in the business of restoring God's creation to its proper order. And that's not limited to the physical things that we see, but also what we think in our mind too. It's not only actually building the bricks, 
building each part, building the house, each part by each part, but it's also the cleansing of our mind and the renewal of my, our mind. So think about it in the Bible. To whom does the bright morning star refers to? Jesus, right? But also Lucifer. So I think it's very, very interesting because there's always the proper order, then there's also the, this corrupted order that Satan is doing. And a few more, few more examples. To whom does the lion represent? Jesus. Jesus. But remember just now I say Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. And what else? Serpent. How about that one? The bronze serpent representing Jesus taking on the sin of the world. But in Genesis, the serpent is also a form of Satan. And how about goat? The scapegoat representing Jesus, but goat also represents sin too, and sometimes represents Satan. And here, so who is the true son of man? Is it Barnabas or Christ? Christ. Right? But Barnabas is so called the son of man. Barabbas. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah, Barabbas, sorry. <laughs> I say the wrong name. So here, like, what is our standard of truth then? Is it the law of man? Like, think of Pharisees, think of certain laws we have today, like abortion. Or is our standard of truth the law of God? Right? So we are constantly having a war against principalities and powers. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So more recap. We talked about last time five tools of spiritual warfare, and they are praise, worship, prayer, fasting, gifts, in the form of offering and tithes. So I think some good resources that I came across uh, briefly, it's, there's this uh, book, uh, Joseph Gang, Worship, the Pen of Things in Heaven. Mahesh um, Chavda, The Hidden Power of Prayer and Fasting. That's a pretty good one also. And when it comes to tithing, R.T. Kendall has a book about it. God. Yeah, so uh, Greg mentioned here, there's a spelling error here. It's uh, Garlington instead of uh, Garrington. My bad. Uh, so let's continue on a little bit more recap. So the main foundation here, it's uh, our foundation for Christian living. It's laid really by the obedience to the word of God through loving God wholeheartedly and through loving its people fervently. And we see that in when Jesus, when the, one of the teachers of the law asked Jesus, so what's the law sums up to? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. I just want to remind, remind all of us, this is our foundation, the Christian living. Everything flows out from here. So today we'll talk about part two, biblical pattern of worship. And when we talk about worship, uh, 
I think it's interesting to look in the Bible, especially when we look in the Old Testament, how God wants worship to be. And to me, I think the tabernacle serves as this model to teach us about thanksgiving, about praise, about worship, and about prayer too. And you'll see uh, these are all in Exodus and Leviticus. You'll see the especially 25 through 27 in Exodus. It talks about the furniture of the tabernacle. So when we talk about a tabernacle, uh, you can break it up into four main sections. The first section is the gate, so everything that's outside the gate. Then the next section is the outer courts. Then now it comes to the actual tent. And in the tent, they're split into two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies. So I have a picture here. I think a picture speaks a thousand words. You can see here, that's a gate there. Then there's the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. So let's talk about the gate a little bit. So in Psalms 104, it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. And this already gives us a little bit of a hint at how we are to approach worship. And I think it's interesting because when he talks about gates with thanksgiving, in Bible time, gate a lot of time, it's uh, where people have deal with the civic matters, where they have meetings over business matters. And it's kind of your day-to-day -day life. So some of the examples we see here, it's Lot. When uh, the angels was walking towards uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, he was at the gates. And he saw the angels coming on. And that's where he started to run to them and talk to them. Or when you talk about uh, David, he planned all the war strategies. Some of them he planned it at the gates. Or Boaz, when he's redeeming Ruth, he went to the elders who were all at the gates at the time and talked about these issues. So I think it's interesting because as we come into the tabernacle, as we come to worship, I think it's important for us to lay aside these civic matters as we enter into the gates. So no matter how bad a day you might have, no matter how crazy it is, we should put it off and we should focus on giving thanks to the Lord as we enter into worship. And next, the outer courts. So as we approach the outer courts, the first thing that we probably will see, it's the brazen altar. And this brazen altar, it's where all the animal sacrifices are burned on it. And this first thing I think it will remind us of, it's Christ's work, and it will remind us of substitutionary atonement. And you see, there's a fire consuming the sacrifice, as stated in Leviticus 9, verse 24. And the fire is continually burning, Leviticus 6, verse 13. And the horns of the altar, it's covered with blood and the consecration of the priest. So as we think of this sacrifice animals, like I say, we should think of Christ as our sacrifice that took on our sin, which is burned and purified in the raging fire in the wrath of God for our sake. And like I was saying, this fire is continually burning, and with Christ's work, it's everlasting. 
So that's why it's kind of continually burning. It's one, the one and only sacrifice that you ever need. So it's interesting as we come to worship, there's some of the things we can think about. And the first thing that we can think about is really giving thanks, I would say, in the gate part, having a heart of thanksgiving. Then as we enter into the outer courts, we remember God's substitutionary atonement for us, the work that He has done for us. And next, as we go a little bit further in, we see this bronze laver, uh, this pool-looking thing, because it's kind of a basin. I think it's pretty interesting, it's pretty uh, significant too, because the Bible talks a lot about water also. And the thing when we think about water, what's probably the first thing that comes to your mind? There's a, it's a cleaning, we, hopefully you guys bathe with water and not something else. <laughs> And you see, uh, this, this step is important because this step is a cleansing and a purification. If not, death is imminent as you enter the holy place, as you enter into the tent. And this kind of speaks that uh, as we come into the presence of God, He requires us to be purified and be made sinless. But by our own standards, like it's impossible. And again, it points to Christ again, the work that He has done to clothe us in, in white so we are blameless before God so that we can come to His presence. I think something interesting to take note here, it's all the furniture in the outer courts is made of bronze. And bronze have a color that is like fire. And the fire in the Bible all the time it represents the judgment of God. Remember the brazen serpent? This represents Christ that took on the sin of the world and facing the wrath of God. That's just a bronze serpent, fire, and a serpent, sin. And that you can, and also in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the other thing about this water that we have, it's water is a type of death in the Bible. So think about the flood. Think about uh, the parting of the Red Sea. God bringing his people through death. I think that's an interesting one. Right? And I think another interesting one in the New Testament, think of Jesus walking through the storm in the Sea of Galilee. Christ walking through death. And this kind of uh, foreshadows what is about to happen as our Christ, our Lord, went through death, but he did not die. Well, he died physically, but that in through this, that he conquered death. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And again, when we think about water, I think another interesting thing here is uh, when, we, when we think about the wedding at Cana, where we remember God, our Lord, making water into wine. And in, in the wedding in Cana, the water that the Lord has made into wine was stored in purification stone jars which Jesus has turned into wine after they have ran out of wine. So interesting enough, 
The interesting thing, I guess, here is what does the wine symbolize? That's right, because of its dark red coloring. And which is the highly anticipated wine here? Is it the wine that had ran out? Is it the wine that we're talking about, the blood of the animals? Or is it the true wine here? It's an everlasting wine, the wine that's better than other wine. And the wine that represents the blood of Christ. And again, in what event is this? It's a wedding, that's right. And again, why a wedding feast? Right? It's a celebration. And when we talk about celebration, we talk in the context of a covenant. So I think this is interesting because this is a foreshadow of Christ's work as the blood to forge the new covenant for his church. Amen. Amen. So let us turn to uh, Hebrews 10. Verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in this sacrifice, there is a remainder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bear witnesses for us. For after saying, this is a covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
Where there is forgiveness of this, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure order. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. I remember entering his courts with praise, as we have read in uh, Psalms 100, verse 4. It's a kind of warfare. Remember, praise is a kind of warfare. Remember that praise is to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion to raise against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so as we enter in a time of worship, we should reinforce the work of Christ in that we are his adopted children. And his blood is sufficient to cover every bit of our sin because you are sin as righteous before God. You may think that you are sinners of sinners. Remember Romans 8 verse 39, it says, There's no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And holding on to this truth, we sing his praises. We sing to each other. We sing to ourselves, to our own very mind. And we sing to the world, how great is our God. Amen. Amen. And from here, let us move on to the next. So now remember, we are all cleansed and we are clean before the Lord. And we are tested by fire. And now we enter in the holy place. But the first thing that you'll see in the holy place is this four layers of curtain, which represents Christ. That's uh, between the outer courts and the holy place. And they are made of a badger skin. Then the next layer, it's a ram skin dyed red. And again, what does red represent here? Blood. Blood. And in Genesis 22, verse 13, it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And who is this ram here that if represents Christ and his work for us, right? Then on that, you have this next layer, which is a black goat's hair. And like we talk about, uh, black is a color that a lot of times represents darkness. darkness, also represents sin. And goat's hair, like I said, talk about just now, goat represents Christ, Christ but also represents sin. Yeah. Which again, it's, we, uh, like we have talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, though, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Then the next layer, you'll see fine linen of different colors, which we'll talk about this a little bit later, because there's a couple of colors that are significant. There's blue, purple, red, there's white. And that's gold also. So then now we enter into the 
holy place. And when you enter in the holy place, you'll see on one side is the table of showbread. On the other side is the lampstand. So let's talk a little bit about this table of showbread. And this table of showbread, a lot of times, it represents the covenant and the providence of God. And usually there's 12 cakes or breads that's laid there. But I think it's interesting because uh, as you see in Exodus 25, you see that this bread is not for God, but it's for the sustenance of the priest. But ironically, the great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, became the bread. It's kind of an interesting part here, a great high priest, but he's also the bread, he's also the providence. So that he can provide for the future priest. And it's in the Bible, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. And who does that refers to? Amen. It refers to us. And you see, and it's interesting also in the holy place, all the, uh, the this uh, table of showbread, it's covered in pure gold. And it's almost like a covenant of gold. And in, in fact, all the furniture in the holy place, they are actually covered with gold. Because gold, a lot of times, it symbols royalty, but it also means when you talk about pure gold, it's tested by fire. Gold refined and refined to get pure gold. And when we talk about bread, John 6, verse 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And 1 Corinthians 11 verse 24, it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this verse is, uh, we commonly talk about it during a specific time during the service. And we can think of, of it where we come together Communion, the breaking of bread. In Isaiah 53, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. His body was breaking, broken. So I think it's interesting because this table of showbread, as we come and we look at it, reminds us of God's providence and God's covenant for all of us here. And this is a covenant that's forged and fired through God and by God that we may receive all the benefits without this weighty cost that we can never bear so that we may have life in Him and we may have life more abundantly. And I would say to this, brothers and sisters, it is truly the grace of God. So let's continue and let's take a look at the next furniture here. And the next major is the golden lampstand, and it represents the church. And again, we think about the word golden, it is tested by fire. And remember, there's uh, seven uh, pieces representing the seven churches. And in the Bible, seven is a significant number because it's a number that usually represents a completion, a perfection. So seven, there's seven churches that's made and while covered in gold, it really represents a perfected church that's tested by fire. And in each lampstand, there's a small little cup 
and in the cup uh, there's some oil there's anointing oil and when we talk about anointing oil a lot of times it represents the Holy Spirit it's a Holy Spirit work to keep this fire burning it's a Holy Spirit's work to continue his church that he may take over uh, the land each foot step by each footstep that we may glorify his name that his church may be built it says in Matthew 5, verse 14, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. I think the other th interesting thing to point out here is on this lampstand, there's a carving of almond. And this uh, almond, they're all blossoming. I think a, a lot of times uh, when we talk about this blossoming of almond, it represents fruitfulness. So remember uh, Aaron's rod, and uh, Korah's uh, rebellion, where uh, the nation of Israel, they were like complaining and murmuring. They're saying, oh, who is God really choosing? So now God uh, tried to settle it once and for all. So he had, well, I guess uh, Moses had every tribe bring a rod and put them before God. And the next day, whoever God choose is the one that the rod will button. And you see here that uh, the rod that budded with almond blossoms was Aaron's rod. And a lot of times when we think about rod, we think about authority too. Like you just say it with the iron scepter, right? And I think uh, with uh, Aaron's rod budding, it really foreshadows the coming of Christ who established the church and God's chosen people, remember, a, a royal priesthood. The chosen one is the people of God, and the chosen one is the Levites. But this Levites will come to see it's us. So in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for its own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we also see here with the uh, work of the Holy Spirit, the anointing oil, combining everything together, we see that authority and fruitfulness is delegated to the church. And here we think of the work of Christ in establishing the church and the Holy Spirit, guiding and bringing fruitfulness to the church and leading us into the presence of knowledge of God as we come to worshiping God. So, continue on. The last piece of furniture in the holy place is the altar of incense. And the altar of incense, a lot of times it represents our prayer and worship unto God. And yet again, again, gold, tested by fire, purified. And here's where our prayers and worship is presented unto God as a sweet-smelling aroma which fills the whole room. In Psalms 19, verse 14, it says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And you see also here that the fine spices are burned day and night. And it's the priest before God here, which is Christ and us. We are a royal priesthood. And think about uh, the gifts of the Magi, because one of the spices in this is frankincense. 
So as Christ was born, the Magi gave Christ a couple of gifts. Remember one, it's gold. The other one, it's a frankincense. And the other one's myrrh. And gold represents king, kingship royalty. Frankincense represents Christ being a priest unto God. And Merle, you'll see later, it represents uh, his sufferings because it's bitter. So you also see here that he represents Christ our Lord with frankincense as being our intercessor day and night. In Hebrews 7 verse 25 it says, Consequently, he's able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always leaves to make intercession for them. And Romans 8, verse 34, it says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So John Calvin also said, The altar of incense was purified by the sprinkling of blood that they might learn that their prayers obtain acceptance through sacrifices. And here we remember that Christ is our great high priest, continually intercessing for us as we do for other people. And that our prayers and worship to him is a sweet-smelling aroma that he satisfies in. So brothers and sisters, we are here. We are not offering uh, uncalled for incense. We are not burning, burning wildfire as we worship the Lord. But in fact, I think God is satisfied with all of us as we come to worship. And He's pleased with all of us as we give our worship unto Him. It's a sweet-smelling aroma unto Him. And now, coming to the Holy of Holies, there's one view that's uh, between these two places. And this view, uh, it has the same colors as the fine linen that I was talking about. So it has a couple of significant colors here. So one of the colors is blue. And when you think about blue, what's, uh, what's the first thing we think about? The sky, the heavenlies. And next, we have purple. And in those days, uh, purple, it's a pigment that was really hard to come about. Because I think it has to be made of a certain uh, crystal or something along this line. It's pretty hard to find. So it becomes very expensive. And so a lot of time, purple represents royalty. You see a lot of the kings and all the uh, queens in the past, they always have purple robes on them. And next, there's also red or scarlet. And again, when you talk about the colored red, the colored scarlet, dark red, we talk about blood. But it's also interesting because when we talk about scarlet, we also talk about firstborn. Remember uh, the scarlet thread that was put on the legs uh, of uh, Yeah, that's right, Jacob and Esau, right? The scarlet thread, they thread on the baby to see who's the firstborn. There is, there is, there is. Wow, very good. I think you know what I'm talking about at least. Yeah, I cannot remember who this. Is. 
But I think it's interesting because the guy is talking about this firstborn that's having this scarlet thread. And when we talk about the cherubim, we talk about reverence and continually praise, continual praise unto God. Because in, those, uh, in that veal, there's these cherubims and they always have like a trumpet with them singing praises unto God. And now we come to the Holy of Holies. And this is God's throne room and where God's presence is. And in, in the uh, Ark of Covenant, there's uh, three items. I, I think it's interesting because one of them is the law. It's a stone tablet. And I, I thought it was kind of interesting that this stone tablet is made of stone for one. And it's split into two stones, five on each. And uh, I thought it was kind of interesting because uh, when we talk about covenant in those days, you talk about cutting a covenant. You cut the stone into two. It's a forging of a covenant. And also we see the budded rod of Aaron that's in there. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. When I talk about the law of God, I think the thing that reminded me of was John 1 verse 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's interesting. God is the Word. And the next one, the butter rod of Aaron, it reminds us of authority. Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. And again, the manna, which was a providence for the Israelites in those days, is the bread. And it reminds me of John 6, verse 35, like I said just now. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes me shall not, never thirst. So I think it's interesting because when we think about the whole tabernacle, it's really Christ's work. It's all about Jesus Christ when we talk about the tabernacle. And it's foreshadowing of Christ coming to us to be our king. So brothers and sisters, I don't think God just wants to be a... Uh, I don't think God wants just a part of us only. But I think God wants all of you, but in exchange for all of Him. Isn't that a good trade? So I think a couple more interesting things. Ah, okay. Here it's, uh, you see all the furnitures in the tabernacle, they were sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice and anointing oil made with five ingredients. And I say some of the ingredients here are myrrh, which represent the suffering of God, of Christ, and olive oil representing the Holy Spirit, and Christ's suffering and death. So let's turn to Isaiah 53, verse 10. Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. 
he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his end. Hand, land, hand. And continue on in verse 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the, inter- the transgressors. Amen. So we also see here like uh, the tabernacle as the shadow of Christ. Because in 2 Samuel 7 verse uh, 11 to 18, we see David foreshadow of Christ. So in, in this part, uh, because of the lack of time, uh, David was wanting to build God a house. But I think it's really interesting because God was saying, no, David, I will build you a house. And when David was speaking these words, uh, do you guys know where he is? Well, in fact, he was in the Holy of Holies. And it was interesting because in those days, who can be in the Holy of Holies? The great high priest. And only once a year, and wherever you enter this Holy of Holies, you fear there's a chance of death. And so it's interesting that David here, he's in the Holy of Holies. He is not the great high priest. Like how come he can be there, but he did not die or so? So I think it's really interesting because David here represents a greater priesthood of the coming Messiah. In Hebrews 7, verse 12 to 16, it says, For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, for which no one ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And in Exodus 9, verse 5 through, 19, verse 5 through 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So brothers and sisters, we here have a new and better covenant. In Matthew 27, verse 51, it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. See, all these steps that the, the priests in the past have go through now, through the work of Jesus Christ, was split to have the curtains open. The presence of God was no longer in a single place, but it's released onto the whole earth. And we are the partakers of this. So now there's no burnt offering but the joyful sacrifice of praise. There's no fear in judgment, but there's a loving, intimate relationship with God himself. In Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. 
The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The brothers and sisters, God is not somebody who can put in the house. But in fact, God wants to commune. He wants to tabernacle with us. And so worshiping in the light of Christ's work, uh, as we worship through the tabernacle model, like think about it as we come to worship, as we enter his gates, like uh, we should be filled with thanksgiving, leaving behind all the things, the cares of the world, as we enter into worship. Then as we enter into outer courts, remember this uh, brazen author, that Christ, the work he has done for us, so that we may become clean, and after we go further, we remember the brazen altar that as he purifies us, as he put on the cloak of righteousness upon us, a cloak of whiteness, and our sins are all cleansed because of him so that we are right before God the Father. And next we remember Christ as we enter the curtains, the things that he has done and who he is and who he was and who he is to be. Then next we enter into the holy place on one side, we see a table of showbread. Remember the covenant of God, His faithfulness throughout the generations. Remember that He is our providence. He is our very need in time, our very help in times of need. And on the other side, we see this uh, golden lampstand. And remember the work of the Holy Spirit in empowering the church and causing the church to be fruitful and causing the church to go out to be a light onto the world. Then as we enter a little deeper, we see the altar of incense. And there remember that our Lord Jesus Christ make intercessions for us. And in turn, we make intercessions for other people. And that as we pray and we worship Him, He satisfies our words and He satisfies our offerings towards Him. It's a sweet-smelling aroma unto Him. And lastly, as we come to the Holy of Holies, remember this field that was torn into two that God no longer is just in the Holy of Holies, but is released unto all people, and that all of us have the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit wants to tabernacle with us. So I think it's interesting because you see, the tabernacle is for us. And God, I would say, He's not uh, hard to please or He's picky. Maybe some of you guys might think that way because, oh, there's so many steps as we come into our worship. There's so many furnitures, so complicated. And maybe you might think, oh, this symbolism, oh, so complicated. Uh, the path of uh, worshiping God, so multifaceted. But I think it's really interesting because the tabernacle was not a house for God, but it's a house for its people. I remember God saying, he's building David a house. He's building us a house so that we may come to him to worship him. The house is for us. And the house is Christ. And the tabernacle is Jesus Christ himself. And Romans 11 verse 17, it says, And you Gentiles who were breaches from a wild olive, branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. 
So let's look here in Hosea 14, verse 2 and 4 through 7. It says, Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquities except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Sacrifice our lips, of our praise. I'll heal their apostasies. I'll love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew from Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. When we talk about this, the sacrifices of praise and its effect, it's bringing healing, love, forgiveness, renewal, fruitfulness, establishment, blessing, and evangelism. So, brothers and sisters, as I end here today, you know, God, coming uh, to worship is really not too difficult because it's all about Christ. It's a desire to enjoy Him and to know Him. But so often as we come to worship, I think one of the biggest barriers we have here is we are distracted by the thoughts the enemy is planning in your minds, in our minds. Thoughts of, I am sinful. Thoughts of, God doesn't love me. Thoughts of, God will not come today. Thoughts of, uh, what is happening this afternoon? What event is going on? Thoughts of worry. Thoughts of boredom. Thoughts of, ah, I'm, I'm just so tired today. But remember, friends, like, uh, we are battling against the enemy. The enemy has planted these thoughts and it's preventing you from coming to worship God. Or perhaps it's your motive correct. Do you want to see and experience the power of God so that you can skip the trials of faith? Perhaps you might be thinking to yourself, if only I see a miracle, then I'll, be, I'll believe God is working today. Or perhaps you're like me a lot of times saying, oh God, take all of me in exchange for all of you. I'm fully submitted to you, 100%. But when temptations come, given the choice to spend time with God in worship or in the Word, the fleshly desires take over. And whether it may be uh, ang- being angry, complaining, wasting time on things like uh, playing small little video games, uh, Facebook, Netflix, or even work, I turn my back on him. I just say to God, oh God, let me have a little bit more of this sin. I love it too much. So brothers and sisters, we need to take every thought captive. We need to cry out to God saying, oh Lord, I believe. Hell, my unbelief. Oh Lord, save me. I love my sin too much. Because brothers and sisters, we need to resist the enemy. In James 4, verse 2 to 8, it says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know what friendship with the world? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, make himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no, it's to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And 1 Peter 5 verse 8 
It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Brothers and sisters, as you're in this season of seeking more of God, let us continue on this fight of faith, whether it is in worship, in praise, in prayer, in fasting, or even our givings. So, like, uh, one of the things that I might ask of all of us here is, If we are able to, as a family or as an individual, commit ourselves to one day of fasting and prayer as a family unit, we want to continue on to continue to pray and to fast for the more of God, for the outpouring of the Spirit, for greater sanctification, for the lost being saved, for the sick getting healed, for abortion to be demolished, for life and light over our city. So with this, I'll end.